Well, good morning. The top of your uh, sermon notes is just a reflection of some of the um, many things that are coming up in the next couple weeks here in the life of the church. We just love to see you involved with this coming Wednesday night is our Wednesday night lights, a kickoff for all of our uh, fall programming with our students, with our children, our small groups, many of them starting up again here in the next week or so. And so I encourage you to be here. Just There's going to be some worship, there's going to be some prayers, there's going to be some food. All of that's provided, so we'd love to see you Wednesday night at 6.30 just here for that particular event. Uh, men, this coming Saturday at 8 a.m., we're going to have our first of uh, what will be a monthly uh, men's gathering for breakfast. There'll be real food, and so we'd love for you to be here for that and just enjoy some connection, some fellowship with other guys, just a, a, a challenge um, to live how God's called us to live. And then a week from Saturday on the 18th, we're having an all-church work day, okay, that we've got a lot to do, uh, mainly outside. So we've got brush to be cleared, we've got fence to tear down, we've got a fence to build, we've got a fence to power wash. Uh, again, there's weeding, and there's trimming, and there's painting, and there's mulching, and we could use some help. So I'd appreciate uh, your help with that. We're gathering a team for all of those pieces. In front of you, there's this green card that says, I want to serve. I'd love if you can join us on the 18th for you to uh, put your name down, maybe your phone number, email, whatever is the best way to get a hold of you. And guys, also be a good, great place for you to put down if you're going to be at that men's breakfast. You can also sign up online for the men's breakfast just at the uh, troycc.org forward slash men. Uh, real simple name, uh, first and last, and uh, email, and that'll let us know how much food to cook. So appreciate your help with those. Now, I've been excited to begin this Joseph series all, all year long, honestly. First of all, just because I love preaching um, from the scriptures in a way that exposes truth and life and application that come... Uh, they just come alive in the text, and I think we'll find that throughout this whole series as we look in the book of Genesis. Second, I think, because there's just so many parts of Joseph's life that we can all relate to. That's why Joseph is a favorite for many in the scriptures, because we just identify with some of the things that he goes through. Um, and then third, I think it's really helpful uh, in the story of Joseph for us to see that the plans of God are unfolding for good, even though we don't always see it in the smaller stories. We'll look at some of the stories of his life and we'll think, man, he's, he's not doing so well. His luck's not so good, and yet all along the scriptures are going to remind us that God uses all of those different pieces of his life to weave together a beautiful picture of something that's good and reminds us that sometimes when parts of our life look so challenging that sometimes those are the very things that God uses um, to do some good things. So it gives us hope and it gives us trust that God is working in ways that we can't see to accomplish things that we ourselves could never achieve. And that is the hope in Joseph. So turn to Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis 37, we begin the story of Joseph. And in this story, we're going to watch play out God's determination 
to fulfill the promises that he made through a covenant to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham. Okay? Despite the character flaws of this chosen family that we're going to see. And these real-life obstacles that occur in Joseph's life along the way. And I think in, in doing so, it reminds us of a very timely message in a world that is filled with the news of chaos and devastation and hurt and heartbreak and all that kind of stuff. Every day in the news, it reminds us that God is able to bring good out of evil. It's a relevant topic for us. Now, the, the first part of the story of Joseph doesn't start like once upon a time. <laughs> it's not a fairy tale beginning. Instead, it resembles more life like you and I know it. Right? It starts with a family that has experienced grief and loss and change and in which there's, there's friction and relational struggle abounds. And at the center of the struggle um, is a spirit of envy. Okay? And right from the start, we see at its roots this, this seed of envy and how it, how it begins and how it's set up beginning in Genesis 37 verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, or Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. Now, we're going to see in these 14 chapters of Genesis here, we're going to see a lot of similarities between the life of Joseph and the life of his father Jacob. Okay? And many of those, area, many of those um, similarities are going to be in the area of family dysfunction, which really is heartbreaking in a sense. Okay? We know about Jacob's early life as a son because we read about it in Genesis chapter 5 earlier in the book. So when Jacob himself was a young man, we knew there was friction between him and his brother and his mom and his dad because it says in verse 27 of Genesis 25, the boys grew up, meaning Jacob and Esau, the brothers, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And then catch verse 28, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And right out of the chutes, now in Genesis 37, where we started, we see Jacob doing the same things to his sons that his father had done to him, showing favoritism. Okay? Now, the truth is that God in his providence is going to leverage this family trait to actually bless his people. Okay? But it nonetheless creates all kinds of strife and envy within this family that we'll see unfold for us in this chapter. Now, Joseph's coat that's referred to there in um, verse 3, that coat is 
one of the most famous parts of the story, right? It's what inspired our backdrop for this series. And as I dug down into that this week, I found that that coat, beyond just like favoritism things that we know of, the coat signifies status as much as it does favor. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that Joseph was designated by his father to manage his brothers instead of laboring with them. And when we read through this chapter later on, it gives us a little bit different picture. Usually we think about a 17-year-old spoiled kid (laughs) that's at home doing whatever while the brothers are out working. Instead, maybe it is a 17-year-old Joseph who's been partly put in charge of his brothers because his father's given him that level of responsibility. Now, when we look at the culture, that coat also signifies um, at least the owner of the coat, which would be Joseph, the one whom the father intended to be the future leader of the household. Now, traditionally in that culture, that would have been the oldest son, Reuben, that we'll read about later. So it's not hard to understand why Joseph, who's number 11 in line, if he's somehow but in charge of the brothers, why these older brothers would, um, would have envied him and hated him and been jealous of him and certainly would have been jealous of the love and favor that, they, that Jacob received from, or that Joseph received from his father Jacob. So just some family dynamics that will help as we watch it play out and see why exactly it plays out in the end. What we find is that the favoritism um, that Joseph had placed on him okay, as, as the, quote, primary son, if you would, only served to alienate him from his brothers okay? and, they, and, and help cause them to lose respect for him. They hated him. They envied him. And in the end, they found they couldn't even interact with him without conflict and hostility. Again, we'll see that play out because as life plays out then um, in this culture of favoritism, one more piece adds to it when, when Joseph himself fans the flame of envy. If Jacob set the table by showing favoritism, Joseph doesn't help out his cause. Look down at verse 5. Okay, um, it says Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. You'll see why. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. Good way to win friends and influence people, wouldn't you say? <laughs> his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you have? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, um, dreams in the ancient world were considered to have come from the divine realm, if you would, okay? And they were taken seriously. In fact, we're going to find that dreams are going to play a huge role in the story of Joseph 
three different times. This is the first one of the three here. But in their culture, like dreams weren't seen as irreversible, but neither would they have been seen as irrelevant. And because they weren't seen as irreversible, we see the brothers scorning the dream like, sure, that's going to happen. <laughs> but because they weren't seen as irrelevant, we see Jacob, who was bothered by and even scolded Joseph because of the dream. We see it there in the verse 11 where it says that Jacob kept the matter in mind. Okay, Read that as wondered what it could possibly mean and could it possibly be true. Okay? So we have um, the benefit. Right? We have the benefit of looking back on these things. We've read, many of us, Genesis 37 through 50. And we realize that these things actually do happen. And what all it took for them to happen, the brothers, they didn't have quite that benefit in that way. Right? Um, we know God will use this to build a whole nation. The brothers, they didn't know that. All they knew was that they had... Um, a very frustrating brother who seemed to be a little full of himself at this point. Okay? And, and I think even if they had faith to think what could that mean, I don't think they could have ever um, received this dream in a way that would foreshadow or they could possibly think of all that God was going to do that we can see on the back end. Okay? So somehow that plays out in our lives at times, right? Like if someone had told them that they should just trust God, and trust that he has a plan in all of this, they would have pushed back or, or minimally doubted just like we do. Okay? You, you can understand living in their shoes a bit, understand from their perspective. And so um, even though their own sarcastic interpretation kind of fell short of what actually was going to happen, I don't think it would have occurred to any of them that their little brother Joseph was actually going to be second in command in the most dominant powered nation in the world but that's exactly what's going to happen and that's what the dreams were telling them okay but to them they just had an entitled brat as a brother and some of you have felt that way maybe before so here begins um joseph's story right this constant reminder of the dysfunctional relationship these boys have with each other and with their father and it's also the start of Joseph's troubles. Okay? And yet God revealed this dream to him. And it reminds us, when God reveals his will to you, other people may not understand okay, what he's doing. They actually may criticize you or oppose you because of it. Obey him anyway. Trust him enough to obey him anyway, whether other people understand or get it or not. The trials that we go through may be difficult. Okay? I could even say definitively the trials that we go through are difficult, okay? but sometimes they're necessary to mold us into the people that God is creating us to be. Okay? Joseph becomes who Joseph becomes because of what happens in this very chapter. Well, um, envy. Um, as some of you know, and others will see as the story plays out, like, the, envy always bears fruit, right? There's the fruit of envy in our lives that is usually not very pretty. And there's the fruit of envy in Joseph's life that is definitely not pretty. So we pick up the story after Jacob told his son to go and check on his brother. They were grazing his father's flock 
in fields that were um, far away, a few days' journey away, actually. And Joseph, again, if we have it right, as, as part of the leadership over his brothers, is told by his father, the supervisor of it all, hey, go check on your brothers and bring me back a report on how things are going. They've been gone a while now, for sure, all part of the plan. So pick up in verse 17 in the story. It says, Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come on now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. The snarkiness, and you got that, right? After all, he is our brother, right? Our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Okay? So Joseph's brothers see him coming from a distance, and they begin to formulate this plan. Now, I can imagine in my mind at first that maybe it's just uh, brotherly banter <laughs> that's happening because of their mutual hatred of their brother, but in the end, it takes such a serious turn. And the motivation of it all there is in verse 20. Remember when they said, then we'll see what comes of his dreams? They haven't forgot that dream. They haven't forgot what he said about them would happen. And, and listen, envy does that. Envy keeps score. Okay? It refuses to let things go. It refuses to bury things in the past where they belong. So the brothers' plans um, for murder and cover-up, like that's the fruit of envy. That's the fruit of hatred in that way. They were averted uh, by two brothers, first by Reuben, okay, who intended to later rescue him, and by Judah then, who, who sees this caravan passing by and, and gives them a profitable alternative. Now, they probably didn't need the money, but they did need to get rid of their brother, so it worked out pretty good in that way. Now, can you see, just if you step back, how, how envy grows? I mean, this envy had grown to the point where they would do the unthinkable. They would sell their younger brother into slavery. It's just a reminder that our jealousy, our envy, it, it's destructive and it's dangerous. It, it will trap you if you let it. It will torment you merciless, mercilessly. It will undermine your relationships. And if you act on your feelings, it will saddle you with um, relentless guilt. So be careful 
what you do with it. Max Lucado writes this concerning envy. He said, although we don't want to admit it, we are by nature self-centered and self-serving. He said, we see these motives at work in the world all around us. Resting at the end of this trail of thought is the deadly briefcase of envy. He said, who is envy's victim? Anyone who has more than he has. More carrots, more horsepower, more office space, more church members. It says, jealousy sets her crosshairs on the one who has more. Envy strikes a target on anyone who has more than I do. Now, for some, we could just stop there because it's just right at the heart of what you're struggling with. But back in our Genesis story, okay, reminds us that God's providence, like his, his taking care of or his ultimately providing for his people, like it's observable here as this caravan passes. Now, they were, it, it wouldn't be so unusual that a caravan would pass, but a caravan passing at that time that's heading to Egypt is nothing, I think, short of God's providence in that way. We know that much of Joseph's story unfolds in the nation of Egypt. And so God needs to get him there, and he leverages the jealousy and the envy of his brothers to get him sold as a slave into Egypt. And much of our story then, beginning next week, will take place there. Okay? So God's big picture story. The upper story we used to talk about when we, used to stu- when we studied the story. Okay? God's big picture story is playing out perfectly. Joseph's story, however, seems less than ideal at this point. Okay? A good reminder for us when our lives are playing out in a way that is less than ideal, that perhaps behind the scenes or maybe over the scenes, God has something better in store for us. We continue, verse 29. It says, When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, Listen to these words. We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Okay? Now, Don't miss the disconnect there. He's not their brother. (laughs) He's their father's son. I mean, their anger at this point has created such a disconnect. Well, his father Jacob, verse 33, he recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. I told you that we would see some similarities in their lives, and I think it's interesting, at least to me, that you'll remember in the story of um, Jacob in Genesis chapter 27 that he deceived his father by killing a goat and by putting the goat hair on his arm so his father would think he was Esau and actually give him the blessing. And here, his own sons are now going to deceive him in a similar way. So the deceiver is now deceived by his own son's lies. And it's a harsh reminder that 
that sin's punishment is often delayed. I'm sure Jacob would have just soon let that story be in the past. I'm a different person now. I'm now Israel. I'm no longer Jacob. I'm now the promise, part of the promised line. I'm no longer the deceiver. And yet here it is bearing fruit in this way. Now the Bible leaves us to decide whether or not Jacob's brothers um, have any remorse, any deep grief for their actions. We're going to pick them up later in the story a few chapters down. Um, we're not going to see any evidence of that guilt, certainly here in this chapter at this point. But the chapter ends this way in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Okay? Now that, that leaves us just enough information to know that even though he's out of the picture, he's not out of the story. Okay? And in fact, when we pick up next week in Genesis 38, we realize that he's at the center of the story but he's still alive. We know his whereabouts. We just don't know what's going to happen to him. So thinking through these verses that we read in this chapter, in this story, um, obviously, at least for me, uh, there are lots of different ways that we could go with this particular application. And to me, envy seemed to be at the heart of this that helps us understand this family, which is why I went that direction. But there are also several things we could apply. Some of them will come up later in the book. So I settled on some special application with regard to um, this, as it relates to parenting, to think about for a minute our families. Now, I'm, I am far from an expert, okay? and in my estimation, the jury is definitely out on the success of my own parenting, um, and yet there's truth here in the scripture. So between myself and our next-gen staff members, Becky and Jonathan, we put our heads together to think, what are some applications for us as part of families who either lead or are part of them from this particular chapter that will help us as we do life with our kids? Okay, as we look at some observations from the text. So five things I just want to point out by way of application that are just parenting lessons for us to remember. And the first is this. Favoritism breeds contempt. Okay? Favoritism breeds contempt. Be aware of how your actions are creating challenges for your kids. Okay? How you treat them how you treat their siblings, how you run your family. Favoritism breeds contempt. We saw it in the life of Jacob's family when he was growing up. Now we see it in the life of Jacob's family as he's a parent. Be careful. Second, remember that relationships are developing. Okay, Be more than aware, like be proactive in creating or guiding your children's family relationships with each other. Okay? Nip this stuff in the bud before it grows. Observe what's going on. Insert yourself into your family. Be the parent in such a way that those relationships that are developing, let them develop in a healthy way through your interaction with them. Maybe uh, one of the most important things from this particular chapter is this third one here. And that is work to love all your kids unconditionally. It's a big challenge because some of them we get along with better than others. (laughs) Some of them, if we're honest, we like better than others at different stages of life. and And that changes, 
Right? Some of them are more difficult than others are. But find something to love. Find something to support. Find something to value. Find something to celebrate in the lives of all your children. Okay? This will be the antidote to favoritism. <laughs> this will be the pushback against envy. Like I know today we're celebrating one, but next week we're going to be celebrating me. And I know they really love this about my brother, but I know they really love this about me. Okay? Find something of value and work hard to love all your kids unconditionally. Don't breed that contempt they have for each other because of how you treat them. Okay? Number four, be aware of and don't repeat the sins of the generations before you. It's a strong theme in this chapter to me. Don't pass on your pain. Don't put your kids through the same thing that you went through. Learn from your mistakes. Offer grace. But change the behavior. If it hurt you, why would you put that same hurt on them? Break the cycle and be a different kind of parent than your parents were. And then number five, maybe overarching it all, um, both as the, ourselves as children and ourselves as parents, is this. Like, take courage. God works in spite of our flaws. Okay? God works in spite of our flaws. Everything that will happen to Joseph will ultimately be for his good and for the good of his family. And for the glory of God, and really what more could any of us ask for? That there, there's maybe a reason for the pain. Or at least there's a purpose and an outcome that brings good to people and honor to God. That, that's really what we want. Okay? So let me kind of go zoom back out again. And, and think about, as we conclude here, uh, these brothers and struggle that maybe you relate to with regard to these brothers, and that is the struggle regarding the dark side of envy. Okay? And let me suggest that there is an antidote to envy, and that antidote is gratitude. Gratitude. Okay? So here's a fundamental question. If focusing on what others have or focusing on what we don't have. Maybe it's material possessions. Maybe it's the, the, the favor of a parent. If focusing on that leads to envy, what would happen if we focused instead on what we do have instead of what we don't have? Okay? What if there was an awareness, like if an, an, if an awareness of what we don't have creates jealousy, what would it produce if we had an awareness of what we do have? Would it not lead us to contentment? Okay. I suggest we give it a try <laughs> and that we see what happens. Take an inventory this week of what you don't have that's causing you jealousy or envy so that you can recognize it and call it out. And then ask yourself, like, is all of that really necessary for me to be content? Do I have to be like someone or have what everybody else has before I'm going to be content as a person? And then take an inventory of what you do have and ask God to give you a heart of thanksgiving as you recognize his work and his blessings in your life. That perspective, I think, leads us to be content.
This is what we read in the scripture, that God is the giver of life, and the life that God gives us, he calls abundant and full. And although all of us go through seasons that are seasons of struggle, because we live with imperfect people, (laughs) and we live in an imperfect world, We will miss out on the blessing if all we choose to see is what we don't have and what we can only find ourselves desiring instead of possessing. The problem could be our focus or the problem could be our desires. Either one, let's ask God to change these things so that we can see and experience life as he intended, life as full, life as abundant, life where joy is present okay now it could be that the reason that we are not experiencing life fully is because we've not yet fully embraced him okay we're going to finish up our service here i'm going to pray and then we're going to sing and then i'm going to move to the back and i would love to talk with you if um, living a life that is full is something that seems to be eluding you if you want to give your life to christ if you want to have your sins washed away in that beautiful ceremony of baptism, if you want to unload some of the baggage that is weighing you down, if you need to talk to someone about some of the junk that was packed on you as a kid or some of the things you fear you might be packing on to your own kids, uh, let's pray together and let's ask God to do the things that only he can do. All right, let's pray. Father, the story of Joseph um, will have many lessons that we would do well to pay attention to that could help change our life so we might experience life that is abundant, life that is full, life that is how you intended. Because oftentimes, Father, our, our focus and our desire leads us down wrong paths like it did these brothers. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to, to be able to trace your goodness in our life so that in difficult times we can trust that you are still good and that we will once again experience that goodness. Lord, draw our hearts to yours, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.